Sometimes after a season of lockdown, you look around and go, okay, what are the things that we don't want to do anymore? And we stop those. What are the things that we haven't been doing that we want to do? And we start doing those. And we also say, what are the things that we wish to do in a little different way? Just as I've taught you as individuals and as families about this is a season to refocus our lives, so is a church. This is a season for us to refocus our lives and refocus our energies. Now I'm going to begin to teach you maybe one or at least one more week, maybe two more weeks, on God's plan for world evangelism. Everybody say God's plan. Not what you read in a book, not what you pick up in a missions book. What is God's plan for world evangelism? There are many Christians today that practice something that is called discipleship. Now, they've redefined the word. It's not the, they don't use it in the same way that Jesus used it in Matthew chapter 28, but they call it discipleship. I have nothing against these people. In fact, those of you that have been around forever, you know back in the 1980s, especially the late 80s, I began to teach you about discipleship because I, I jumped on the same bandwagon everybody else was jumping on. And then one day I had to realize, now, now wait a minute, we're redefining terms here and this is not right. And so you, you don't hear me use that word much anymore. You see, one of the things I recognized very quickly back in the 1980s when the discipleship movement began to get growing really strong is first of all, I recognized the source of it came from the old shepherding movement from the 1970s in the U.S. And that shepherding movement, we'll talk more about it as we go today, uh, did not last very long because it had some very, very extreme things in it. Now, people have cleaned it up and they market it and make it look a little better today, but it still has a couple of those extreme things in it. But the big thing that bothered me about the discipleship movement is it was all inward focused. It was all about us Christians being better Christians and as churches we learn how to put on better events that will attract Christians and it was all about an inward focus. Everybody say inward focus. And that was the same focus I recognized in the shepherding movement. And people have forgotten that the first words of the Great Commission is not discipleship. The first words of the Great Commission is go. Everybody say go. Say it again. But they, they've forgotten that word and now everything is this inward focus. Now, again, I, I understand this. If you search through the scriptures, you begin to see that God never intended Israel to just be the only ones that knew about him. God's intention was always for Israel to be evangelistic and take the message of the kingdom to the world. But if you go back and you study Israel's history, not just biblical history, but their history through Josephus and the others, you begin to realize that everything about Judaism turned inward. And it was all about us. In fact, in, even in Jesus' day and Paul's day, they, they were so isolationist and they, they were so focused on just themselves that if a, if a Greek-speaking Jew, even a full-blooded Jew who came in from overseas, came to Jerusalem to worship, a Greek-speaking Jew was not allowed on Temple Mount until they went through special purifications because you weren't good enough to worship with the rest of all of us. And I've noticed more and more in Christianity this inward focus on we want to be so perfect and we want to be so wonderful and this focus is all about ourselves. 
So when I begin to talk to you about discipleship today, I, I have no criticism. But I would say this is not God's plan for world evangelism. People have redefined words. Now let's start in Matthew 28 today, beginning with verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Pastor, you just contradicted yourself. No. Let's see how the word is properly used today. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now many of the questions I'm going to give you today are the questions that made me sit down and analyze what I was teaching in the late 80s and go, now wait a minute, I'm getting the congregation off in the wrong track here. We need to get focused back on world evangelism. And one of my first questions was this. If that word discipleship is to be so central to the Great Commission, why when Mark writes the Great Commission is it left out? Mark 16 verse 15. And he said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now what I want to walk you through over the next two, maybe three weeks, is about a series of about seven or eight thoughts. Number one, discipleship must be understood as a door of transition into salvation, not as an endless pursuit or process. Secondly, the twofold planting of world evangelism. And the next week, Lord willing, the principle of planting, number one, how to make a disciple. The principle of planting, number two, how to retain a new disciple's walk with God. Principle of planting, number three, how to retain an older disciple's walk with God. Principle of planting, number four, how to develop fruitful Christians. Now let's start with this first thought. Discipleship must be understood as a door of transition. You become something. It is not an endless process. It is not an endless pursuit. All the word disciple means is student. Everybody say student. Jesus was called rabbi, which means teacher. And the people who followed Jesus were called disciples or students. Everybody say students. Now, modern Christianity too often today presents discipleship as an endless process where there is a person who is inserted in your life and they become your discipler. And that person's job for the rest of their life and the rest of your life, or they're replaced by somebody else at some point, their responsibility is to grow your spiritual life. Their responsibility is to continually disciple you because you're not yet a disciple. You are becoming a disciple. But that's not what the scriptures teach at all. There should never be someone who is interjected in your life whose responsibility is to grow your salvation. As pastors, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, he gave some to be apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry. And then those saints build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. At some point we have to recognize our job as pastors is not to babysit you and to wipe your sipon. Our job as pastors is to equip 
you to serve. Everybody say, train me, equip me to serve. Brothers and sisters, in Protestant Christianity, one of the great foundation stones of Protestant Christianity is that we talk about a personal salvation. We talk about a personal relationship with God. Now, if you have a personal relationship with God, and if it is personal salvation, then you must also accept personal responsibility for your salvation. This is what Paul teaches in Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. Everybody say, my salvation, my responsibility. There should not be someone in your life. We, we've created this new office in the church. Now there's apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, and discipler. That is not an office of ministry in the church. It's a man-made office. And this person interjects themselves into, the, into our lives, and really, it's not biblical discipleship. It's worldly mentorship. It's worldly life coaching, where you are, are too silly and too simple and too unable to take care of yourself spiritually. But you're not. The Holy Ghost is within you. You are the temple of God. You are perfectly capable of working out and being responsible for your own salvation. I, I didn't hear you. We don't need a life coach. Did you read your Bible today? Let me treat you as if you're three years old. Did you read your Bible today? Did you say your prayers? Did you brush your teeth? Did you remember to wash behind your ears? That is not what Christianity is all about. Forgive me, that is not discipleship. That is something, well, we won't get into what I think is something of. Now, th these disciple are people. They stay connected to your life, and, and this is one of the challenges that I have. In, in many of these discipleship programs, they want to take you to a retreat. They usually call them encounter weekends. And in that encounter weekend, you meet your discipler. And your discipler says something to you like this. I want you to tell me about all the sins of your past. Because you're never going to be truly free until you tell me all of those sins of your past. You, you need to speak it out to somebody so that you can be completely free. Excuse me. When you came to Jesus and turned away from your sins and turned to God, Jesus set you free. I didn't hear you. No place in the Bible are we taught to go and confess our sins to some person who has interjected themselves into our lives. Well, no, Pastor, the Bible tells us to confess our sins one to another. The Greek word there for confess is the Greek word exomologia, which literally means to gladly, publicly agree with each other. It, it's a word that removes strife from a congregation or strife from a family. When you have sinned against one another, you gladly and publicly say, you know what, I was wrong, you were right, please forgive me, and everybody's happy, and there's no more strife. 
When the Bible teaches us about confessing our sins to God, it's the Greek word homologeia, which literally means to agree with and say the same things. We come to God and we say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. Forgive me, change me in Jesus' name. But brothers and sisters, this, this whole thing about somebody knowing about all of your past, please forgive me. Psychologically, that's how people get control over you. Now, it may be sweet, and it may be friendly, and it may be with a big smile, and maybe those are the most difficult people to deal with, the, the friendly person who, who does it, the nice person who does it. But it's still all about control. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus forgave you, he cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, never to remember them again. You should never sit around and confess all of your deepest, darkest foolishness from your past. You have been forgiven. That's what the blood of Jesus is all about. I didn't hear you. But this modern concept of this discipler, and then every week you go to them and you confess your sins to them. I've heard the greatest horror stories as your pastor for over 40 years about how these people, that you sit down and you confess your sins to them, and then one day you want to do something that they don't like, and they bring out their notebook and they say, we're going to tell everybody about all these things you've done. That's not how we are to live. You confess your sins to God, and you're forgiven in Jesus' name. But now that I've got your attention, let me ask you some questions that I ask myself. 30 years ago, when I began to realize I'm taking the congregation down a wrong path here. These are some of my questions that I ask myself. My first question was, why is Mark so different than Matthew? If, if the concept of discipleship is the hallmark of Christianity, why did Mark leave it out of the, of the Great Commission? That made me think, wait a minute. Everything in the Bible that's important, God repeats two or three times. Why is it so different? Why is the emphasis of the Great Commission on Mark go into all the world and preach the gospel? Because that is also the emphasis in Matthew, but it's been clouded by the misuse of the word discipleship. Second question. If modern discipleship, as presented in the world today, is God's plan, why did Jesus ignore it? Have you ever noticed that? Well, Pastor Jesus had disciples, yeah. He not only had 12, he had probably 72 to 84 close, depending on how you count different passages in the Scripture. He had hundreds, if not thousands of people who were called his disciples. But the only ones he focused all of his time on were the 12. Did Jesus neglect all these other people? Did Jesus disobey the will of the Father by not discipling all of these thousands and thousands of other people that were his disciples? No. Well, what was the thing with the 12? The 12 is not discipleship. The 12 is the training of leadership for when he died. The next generation. My next question, why is it that throughout the book of Acts, we do not see this 
form of discipleship that we see in the world today taking place? Were these people disobedient to God? For instance, the great revival in Samaria. Jesus had planted the seed with the woman at the well in that village that, that came out to hear him that day. Philip went down into Samaria. Now you have to remember, Jews don't like Samaritans. They consider them half-breeds, parang askals, only human askals, just all mixed up. They weren't pure-blood Jews. In fact, the Jews used to say, thank God I'm not born a dog, a woman, or a Samaritan. They didn't like the Samaritans. Very prejudiced. Philip went down to Samaria, and that seed of revival that Jesus had started exploded. And he had this great move of God, and all these people born again, and miracles of healing happening. And then Peter and John, two of the apostles, came down to help. But nobody stayed very long. Acts 8, verse 25, now when they testified and spoke the word of God, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Notice, they preached the gospel and then moved on. In verses 26 to 28, Philip, who started the great meeting, an angel spoke to him and said, leave and go down to this road going down from Jerusalem. No, no, wait a minute. How could the angel be so irresponsible? No one is left discipling these people. How could the apostles be so irresponsible? They'd leave and not disciple the people. And then it gets worse. The angel joins him up with this Ethiopian eunuch on the road in Acts 8 verse 39, or 8 verse around, starting around verse 30. The Ethiopian eunuch gets saved and said, what prevents me from being baptized? Here's water. Philip baptizes, I mean, yeah, Philip baptizes him. And the Bible says in verse 39, immediately the Spirit took him away. Now, excuse me. Was the Holy Spirit being irresponsible? He didn't park in this man's life. This is a powerful, wealthy, influential man. He's going to go change a nation. I need to put my life and join my life to him and disciple him. No. The Holy Spirit just took him away. Why did Paul stay such short times? We only find him spending extended periods of time in places like Antioch of Assyria, his home church, Ephesus, Corinth, all the other places, he'd spend a few weeks, open a church, and then he would leave. Now you look at all this and you go, if modern discipleship is truly the biblical pattern, then why is it that the apostles, the deacons by the name of Philip, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the angels never implemented? And here's a big another question for you. Why is it that after the book of Acts, the word disciple or discipleship is not used again to the rest of the New Testament? Oh. Because disciple defines who a person is. Something that has been accomplished in their life. They have become a student of Jesus. It was the most common name among the Jews 
to call someone a disciple of Christ. Later, the Jews called Christians the way. Later, Christians were called Christians first in Antioch of Assyria, like the Christ. That's what Christian means, like the Christ or like the Messiah. So now that we've had a few questions and our minds have opened up a little bit, when did Jesus really say a person becomes an apostle? Now we're not playing semantics, folks. We're, we're talking about the next 20 years of our life evangelizing our nation. And we have to understand, what is it that God expects of us to evangelize a nation? Now, what, when did Jesus say a person becomes a disciple? Open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I'll never forget, I was reading this one Bible. In fact, I've still got it stuck on my, my shelf. All of a sudden, John 8 just opened up in my heart. And I, I spent weeks just studying John chapter 8. Look at verse 31 with me. So Jesus said to the Jews who had, past tense, tapusna, who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, NIV says, if you hold my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. NIV says to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you. Now, what is Jesus saying? When does a person become a, a disciple? Number one, you've got to believe in Jesus. Everybody say, believe in Jesus. Now, believing in Jesus doesn't mean you're saved. Believing in Jesus doesn't even mean you like him. If you read on there in John chapter 8, these people who believed in him wanted to kill him. But they believed in him. So first, a person has to believe in Jesus. Then secondly, they have to hold his word in their heart. This goes back to the parable of the sower and the seed that we're going to really focus on next weekend, Lord willing. They have to not allow the word to be stolen out of their heart. They have to hold the word we're talking just a moment about First Peter, that you have to hold, you, the, we're saved by the planting of the incorruptible seed of the word within our hearts. We'll get to that verse in a minute. But they have to choose to hold that incorruptible seed in their hearts. And as they choose to hold that incorruptible seed in their heart, they know truth. Now the Greek word there for know means to know by experience. When you hold the living word of God within your heart, you begin to experience something. And that experience sets you free. Everybody say, salvation. This is why when people tell me I'm saved, my next question to them is, tell me how you changed when Jesus saved you. Because if you have truly become a disciple, if you have been saved, and that's all becoming a disciple means is you got saved, when you get saved, you change. How many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you changed when you got saved? Raise your hand up high. Wave it at me. Okay. Now, I'm trying to keep this as simple as possible. A person becomes a disciple 
because number one, they believe in Jesus. Number two, they hear the Word of God and they hold the truth of the Word of God within their heart. Number three, the Word of God within their heart begins to grow and changes them. They experience truth and that truth sets them free. That's who Jesus calls a disciple. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you here believe in Jesus? Raise your hand. How many of you here have heard the gospel? Raise your hand. How many here have held the gospel and held it in your heart? Raise your hand. How many of you have experienced being set free by the word of God in your heart? Raise your hand. You are a disciple. You don't need to be discipled. You are already a disciple. Becoming a disciple is not a process. It is not a pursuit. It is an event that happens in your life. It is what you could call the event of salvation. Everybody say, I am a disciple. You don't need someone to disciple you. You are a disciple. Now, let me then ask the question. What did Jesus really say in the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Well, just read it. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Make sure they have to believe in me, they have to hold my word in their heart, and they have to be changed by the word. And then baptizing them. Who's them? The disciple. You make the disciple. You baptize the disciple, and then you teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what the Great Commission is all about. It is not a lifetime process of pursuing becoming a real disciple of Jesus. You are a real disciple of Jesus. And when you become a disciple, then you are water baptized. You are a student. You are what? Therefore, you are taught. You got that? Remember? Disciple means student. And then he says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. It is just that simple. So discipleship is just basically for real salvation. Everybody say, real salvation. Now, again, this is an outward-focused understanding. Everything about it is go. Everybody say go. Everything about this concept of making a disciple is go. We, and everybody say go and keep going. Modern discipleship says go and then park. But we don't park ourselves in people's lives. We keep going in Jesus' name. Are you learning? And we're laying foundations. We'll get into what all this means next week, Lord willing. So make sure you're here. Now let me take it a step farther. World evangelism is basically a planting ministry. But it is a two-fold planting. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning with verse 5. Now, basically, I'm introducing thoughts that we're going to dig into detail the next few weeks. Verse 5, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. Now, Paul's understanding of world evangelism was not modern discipleship where you go someplace and park yourself in somebody's life who is influential and you, you're going to mentor them for the rest of your life. Paul's understanding of world evangelism is, I'm a planter. Everybody say, I'm a planter. Paul recognized, I plant seed. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Now let me show you a picture here of what we're actually talking about. Do you notice? Next slide, please. There you go. Perfect. Now I can't plant, okay? I, I'm not a... Don't ask me to plant things physically. I plant things spiritually, good at. But Sister Bev and I have never been very good at growing plants. When we were newly married, we tried to plant peas out behind our back door. And then we went off to do crusades, and when we came back, the ground looked like concrete. Brother Oscar down in Cebu always has a good laugh with me, because Brother Oscar, he knows how to grow things. I mean, he can grow things. And we were laughing again last week. He brought some kind of a tree back from Israel. Was it a fig tree or an olive tree? And he gave one to us. He brought a tree back from Israel. And he grafted things together and he made one grow for him and one grow for me. And he brought it over to my house and we planted it and it died. But you know what? His kept living. So I'm not real good at the, the physical planting stuff, all right? But I understand spiritual planting. You see every one of those little boxes? That's individual human hearts. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 13, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Your heart is considered soil. Everybody say, my heart. And the seed is the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. It's living. Now, those seeds have life in them. But you can destroy those seeds. You cannot destroy the seed of the gospel. Let me say that again. You cannot destroy the seed of the gospel. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Verse, chapter 1, verse 23. For you've been born again, not a perishable seed. This, this seed of the gospel never dies. But of imperishable, through the living and enduring, or living and abiding word of God. So the first planting that we do is the planting of the seed of the gospel in the hearts of people. Everybody say, planting seed in people's hearts. Now, sometimes that's, that's as simple as sharing the gospel with somebody on a Zoom. For sometimes that's as simple as sharing the gospel with somebody in, in the back of a jeepney. 
But notice, it's the planting of the word, not the planting of your testimony. Again, I go back to the 1970s when I got saved. The big thing in those days was testimonies. And everybody shared their testimony. You don't get saved listening to a testimony. There's no life in a testimony. It's a nice story. It touches our hearts. It touches our emotions. But there's no seed in it. If you want to get people saved, you have to plant the seed of the gospel. You have to plant the word in somebody's heart. Everybody say, plant the word. Not your testimony. Please, your testimony is wonderful. But you have to plant the word. People are not saved by testimonies and stories and making cuento. People are saved because you've shared with them what the word of God says about who Jesus is and what Jesus did in their life. And everybody said? And everybody said? Now, this is the whole passage. And we're going to get into this in detail next week. Matthew 13, beginning with verse 18. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears, hears the word of the kingdom, there's the seed, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, snatches away the seed out of the soil. That is what is sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, that is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Okay, so not only do we need to plant the seed in people's lives, we need to try to work with them a little bit to get some roots. Everybody say, get some roots. Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky soil, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and make it unfruitful. Now we're beginning to step up into bearing fruit. Verse 23, as for what was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, and indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case... A hundred, and in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, this is all about salvation. This is the first planting. Everybody say, the planting of the Word in my heart. But now there's a second type of planting that must also take place in people's lives. And that is the planting of their life. Now, again, let me show you a couple of pictures to illustrate. When people have planted these little plants in those little boxes, there comes a point when the plant has begun to grow, the roots have gone down, the leaves have gone up, and people will take that plant now out of the little pot, out of these little pots, and they transplant it into the soil where it's going to grow. It's permanent growing place. Next slide. Permanent growing place. Now this is the planting of the Lord. Everybody say, the planting of the Lord. God is a planter. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3. That he may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Everybody say, I'm the planting of the Lord. That's one of the things that we can call ourselves. We're the planting of the Lord. 
Jeremiah 11, verse 17, the Lord of hosts who planted you. Jeremiah 12, verse 2, you planted them and they take root. So not only has the word of God been planted within our heart, that as the word of God began to take root within us, then God plants us. Everybody say, I am planted. And this is what Jesus is talking about in the parable of the wheat and the tares. The good seed planted are the sons of the kingdom. God plants us in his harvest field. Everybody say, the seed is planted in me, and then I am planted in the harvest field. Say it again. Jesus was planted. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Matthew 13, 38. The field is the world. Jesus talked about the parable of the wheat and the tares. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. So all right, the word of God has been planted in my heart. It's growing. It's beginning to put down roots. And now God takes me and plants me in his harvest field. But he does more than plant us in a harvest field. He plants us by the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 17, verse 8. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. We'll get into all this more detail next week. Psalms 1, verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. Ezekiel 17, verse 5. He's placed beside the abundant waters. We're planted in Jesus. Colossians 2, verse 7. We're rooted and built up in him. Everybody say, my roots go into Jesus. So you're not only planted in the harvest field, you're not only planted by the streams of living water, by the, the moving of the Holy Spirit, you're planted in Jesus. And one of the things that we'll be learning about the next few weeks is you have to help people get roots into Jesus. We're not rooted into each other, we're rooted in Jesus. Everybody say, I'm rooted in Jesus. Modern discipleship gets that person rooted into a person. Biblical world evangelism gets people rooted in Jesus. Everybody say, roots go into Jesus. We're planted in God's house, Psalms 92, 13. They are planted in the house of God, and they flourish in the courts of God. We'll get more into this next week. As you can tell, there's lots of this. Now, what I've tried to do today is lay a foundation for you that we're going to build on for at least one more, maybe two more weeks, probably two more weeks. Beloved, you have to understand, everything about the Great Commission is movement. Everybody say movement. The seed is planted within us. We hold it. We're changed by it. We become a disciple. Then as his sons, we are planted in the harvest field to produce a harvest of souls. Every believer, every person that we get born again, this is the process that God wants. The seed is planted in them, grows in them, they're changed, they become a disciple, and then the Father plants them in the harvest field. It's constant movement, constant growth, not us sitting around looking at each other trying to become better people.
you are already saved in Jesus' name. Now, yes, we all want to grow, and everybody said, please, don't, don't take what I'm saying and stretch it like a rubber band. But everything about New Testament evangelism is about this concept of planting. The Word is planted in us. The Word grows in us and changes us, and we become a disciple, and then we become a planting of the Lord. God plants us in His harvest field, and we produce 160 and 30-fold fruit. And everybody said, there should never be an end to the growth. Let me say that again. There should never be an end to the growth. Those people planted in the harvest field are reproducing after their own kind. They're planting the seed of the word in other people. Those people now become disciples, and God plants them. And there's this beautiful exponential growth that begins to take place. But it's not Christians gathering themselves together and focusing on each other. It's Christians being planted in the harvest field and changing the world in Jesus' name. Now, beloved, please, I've been your pastor 40 years, over 40 years now. When I hit 60, I sat down and took a good look at myself. And I said, you know what? We built a great church in Manila, but we haven't changed the nation. I mean, I sat down and wept when I began to be honest with myself. 40 years of my life. When I came to the Philippines, we had 60 plus million people. Now we have like 103, 100, somebody said 107 the other day. 107 million people. There's not that many more churches than 1980. Please forgive me. Those of you that are a little older, you know it's true. There's not that many more churches now than there were in 1980. How many of you want to see our nation get really saved? Raise your hand up high. Then let's open up our minds a little bit and go, how did they do it in the Bible? We've told all of our branch churches, you shouldn't just sit around and be a branch church. You should be out starting branches of yourself. Are we still here? Would you take your communion, please? As we reopen and as we start back up, the cry of my heart is that the Great Commission would burn in every single heart of our members. That every place we went, we would make disciples. <laughs> We'd plant the word. I teach you about that next week. We go to the province on vacation, we start a church in Jesus' name. Do you realize that's what's happened during lockdown? All these new churches that started, it was you. You went out and said, well, I can't leave. I might as well start a church. You didn't start a church. You started a Bible study, and it turned into a church. Are we still here? This multiplication is what's supposed to happen. Now, maybe one of the strongest things I said to you today deals with your salvation. Don't you ever let somebody come up to you
and tell you that you need to open up your heart and tell them your deepest, darkest secrets. You know what? They're forgiven in Jesus' name. I didn't hear you. Ulitinatan, this bread represents the body of my Savior. <laughs> like a corn of wheat, he fell into the ground and died. But he didn't abide alone. His sacrifice is why I'm here today. I remember the sacrifice of my Savior. Let us partake of the bread together. Ulitanatan, this cup represents his blood that washed away, not just covered up, not just hid, washed away, erased all the sin, all the guilt, all the shame of all my past. There's nothing back there to find. It's been removed by the blood of Jesus. I remember what my Savior did for me. Let's partake of the cup. at somebody next to you and say, the gospel really works. Can I just encourage you to do like the Christians in Jerusalem did when Paul began his persecution against them? Literal translation. They went out and gossiped the gospel everywhere. Everybody say, gossiped the gospel. Now, now, please forgive me if I use an illustration from real life today. Have you ever noticed people love to talk about politics? And fight about politics. Woo. First of all, whoever you want to vote for has nothing to do with your Christianity. Okay, please. I mean, let's, let's stop that nonsense. Everybody has the right to vote for whoever they want to vote for. Leave it alone. But have you ever noticed people love to talk politics? What would happen if we talked to Jesus as much as we talk politics? Hmm. If we just, everywhere we went, talked about what Jesus did on a cross for us. They start talking about whatever, and you go, can I tell you about somebody who can really change your life? Somebody who will make your whole future different? Yeah, which, which candidate? Well, he doesn't need a political office. He's already a king. His name is Jesus. 
Let me tell you what he did for you. And in about two or three minutes, drop the gospel seed in their heart. Are we still here? Yes. 